Hello, and welcome to Bright Lights, Big Data, a podcast about people, places, and data. I'm your data host, Tammy Armstrong. And I'm your planning host, Mike Armstrong. And we are excited to launch into our next chapter of our series on problem solving. So just us today, no interviews. Just to recap, so far in the problem solving cycle, we've talked about defining the problem. Mm -hmm. We've talked about data collection. Mm -hmm. We've talked about data exploration. Exciting. Yeah, so good. Get out your compass. Mm -hmm. And now we're talking about modeling or what's the meat of the the problem-solving process. Right. You have all of this data now. How do you turn it into recommendations or information that's actually actionable? Yeah. How do you get to the insights? So we each have some things to share on that from our backgrounds. And without further ado, we'll launch right in. Out of the two things I'm talking about today, the first one is going to feel a bit more like I am making the case for why planners exist. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's Um, fair. And then the second, we'll dive into how it actually gets done. When we first started talking about this topic, when we were planning out the episode, um, one of the things that you mentioned was this term objective function. Mm -hmm. So for doing analysis or developing recommendations for a business, oftentimes, you know, the bottom line is their highest priority Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever it may be, like whatever aligns with their mission, but... Um, Maximizing profits or minimizing customer churn or something like that. Right. Um, And I feel like that's very common in sort of the business side of things. Mm -hmm. Those are very clearly identified and... Measurable. Measurable (laughs) and sort of company-wide, you know. Mm -hmm. You're all pulling for the same thing. Yeah. So when I think about planning and why planners exist, it is because we never have an objective function for planning activities. And I don't mean that like in terms of what I do, but like you think about a transportation project or a housing project, there's so many different competing priorities and values. And so that there is never a clearly defined objective function. Like what is your highest priority? We talked a while back about wicked problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, there's never going to be a Y equals at the end right. of the whole thing. Like we're not going to get to an answer, but we also don't often get to have very clearly delineated hierarchies when you encounter trade-offs. We know that we're going to have trade-offs, but which do you prioritize when you get there? Do you think part of that is because like a business has its mission, right? It's It's creating... A product or a service or it's, it's doing something right but just cities cities don't really have that sort of same purpose or driving goal right I mean it's just trying to keep things running I mean right one of the biggest issues is that you could say that a city has a vision you know that would be their comprehensive plan mm-hmm. this is the most widespread intensive community engagement process that a city usually does all of council is involved and interested, a lot of different staff, all the different neighborhoods, like a huge aggregation of all of this different data to determine our vision. Mm-hmm. And even with that, so few people are connected to the comprehensive plan. Mm-hmm. It's not exciting to come out and participate in a comprehensive plan because it's not a specific project. You'll show up when they're you know, working on the street that you drive on every day, but... Mm-hmm. 
this sort of big mushy vision, it's hard to get people to yeah. come out. And even at the best times, like say we did a comprehensive plan for Des Moines and talked to 20,000 people. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. But it's a city of 200,000 people. So there's always going to be some difficulty there yeah. um, of, that's great, that's the comprehensive plan, but it's not my values. Right. Um, and on the other side of it, and I don't mean this to be a negative thing, but it's how people work, is that our stated values and our actual values don't always align. So if you ask this question of, we're doing a street project what should be our hierarchy of values or our objective function? Mm -hmm. Almost everybody is going to say safety. Mm -hmm. Some of the streets that have been designed and, you know, are functioning today are not the safest design. Mm -hmm. So how did we get there? Mm -hmm. And we get mm -hmm. there because what people call in to complain about to city council members, mm -hmm. you know, express their concerns, say, this is impacting my life and... You know, I want you to do something about this is often about convenience. You know, if your commute time suddenly goes from 20 minutes to 30 minutes, that's mm -hmm. an impact on your daily life and it's a frustration and you feel like you've lost something. Mm -hmm. But if we had that objective function of safety is at the top of it all, we would do what we could to mitigate that, but we wouldn't compromise safety. Mm -hmm. And to a degree, we do that at times. And the other side of it is that, and maybe you can relate to this, I'm sure that this happens in modeling as well when you're working with people who are not modelers, is there's often conflict between perception and actuality. Mm -hmm. So the a street can have a perceived safety and an actual safety, mm -hmm. and those don't align. And if yeah. you're driving to work every day on this road, you never see a crash. Right. You've never been right. involved in a crash. A lot of times you can't take that at face value of, yes, mm -hmm. we need to improve the safety of the street. Yeah. Well, and if all those voices are given equal weight, you know, another corollary to analytics is sometimes we have to predict rare events. And if you don't do anything special to weight your data differently, you know, the prediction that you're going to come out with is that the rare event doesn't happen ever, 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 because right. it only ever happens 1% of the time. So your prediction is just going to say 99% of the time it's not going to happen. And so if all those voices are given equal weight, like, well, I've never been in a crash, then it's going to look like you should prioritize those things like time and, and yeah. convenience so when you, somebody maybe is getting in an accident. Right. So if you look at a city's comprehensive plan, any city, mm -hmm. pretty much in the entire U.S., you will see safety, quality of life, family-friendly, environmentally-friendly. Like, these are the expressed values of our communities. These, this is what we should be driving towards. Mm -hmm. I have never seen a comprehensive plan that talks about convenience, commute times, hmm. that sort of thing, which, you know, are real issues. Like, it affects people's daily lives in a negative way. But we're here to make decisions for the long term. You know, this road mm -hmm. is going to be this way for 20, 30, 50 years. Mm -hmm. And we need to think that long term. But it's hard to balance all of that. Yeah. And on the other side of it, so think about Grand Avenue. Okay. We'll leave out downtown. We'll just say heading westward. So you start just out of downtown. You got Central Campus. Okay. Um, you have some middle schools mm -hmm. on there parks, the art center, mm -hmm. there's stretches of businesses, mm -hmm. there's homes and apartments on 
yeah. there itself. It connects out to West Des Moines. And mm -hmm. so it goes all that way. And so you have people living here, people working here, commuters driving through here to get downtown or to the east side. You have Des Moines and West Des Moines. The Iowa Department of Transportation is involved with that around 63rd. 63rd is a state highway, so they're involved there. So you have all of these different jurisdictions, you have all of these mm -hmm. different people with competing mm -hmm. values. Mm -hmm. When we think about schools, we want traffic speeds to be very slow, so it's safe mm -hmm. for them to cross the street, so school buses and parents can pick up and drop off. That's a very different purpose and set of priorities than somebody who's driving into work. They're mm -hmm. not stopping anywhere along Grand, but they use it to get through. Mm -hmm. And that's very different from somebody whose driveway comes up to Grand. Mm -hmm. So again, like, none of these are mean-spirited. It's just that a city is very complex. And, like, mm -hmm. there's so many people interacting with any one piece of infrastructure mm -hmm. with very different values or different purposes at hand. Mm -hmm. So all of that is kind of the planning process is how do we balance these mm -hmm. competing values, these stated and unstated objective functions. That's sort of the biggest piece of all this. You know, we've collected all of this data, public engagement and existing conditions, needs, assessments, all of these different things. And you would think you could just say, here is the best option then. But that's not the case because the best option, that perception is different depending mm -hmm. on what you're bringing to the project of, you know... I want to be able to get into work. There's not an alternative route that I like, and this is going to mess with my schedule and add time, and I need to pick up my kids from school. And mm -hmm. It's just all of these different pieces that you're trying yeah. to um, create a positive solution for as many people as possible that aligns with the overall goals of the city and helps you move forward. Yeah. Well, and at a certain level, it's very, very easy to optimize to one objective function. Mm -hmm. But you're not going to like the answer if you do that, typically. Right. So, like, if a business wants to, if they say they want to minimize their costs, the easiest way to do that, you can drop your costs at zero if you go out of business, if you right. shut your doors. So it's never really just that one thing, right? It's it's this, okay, we want to minimize our costs, we want to maximize our profits while complying with the law, while maintaining a good reputation you know there's there's always these other things underneath the surface and, and you have to balance those things right that's absolutely it so again when we talk about safety i'm not trying to talk down about anybody like <laughs> um you know safety is most people's highest priority mm -hmm. and as you said like the safest possible street is one that nobody can drive on like <laughs> yeah. if you only allowed people to walk on it you're gonna bump shoulders sometimes but nobody's gonna die <laughs> ship is in the harbor is safe but that's not what ships are built for <laughs> so again it's that, that safety is our highest priority and it needs to be safe up to a point mm -hmm. in relation to these other values because it is very personal and very mm -hmm. emotional uh, emotional and very morbid yeah nobody will say out loud <laughs> of like we want it to be X amount of safe. Right. I imagine, you're, and you're not going before, like, boards and things saying, like, kids are going to die. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we can do it this way, but three people are going to die. Yeah. Like, it's, that's not how it all works. Um, yeah. 
But again, and, and it's probably hard again, and this will come up in my section too, but like people suck at estimating and understanding risk on the other end. Like if they right. hear it's a 20% chance of blah, blah, blah happening. And then it doesn't happen that year. Like, well, then you were wrong, you know, and, and the credibility becomes an issue. Right. So there's all of those. And as a planner, there's some aspects of, you know, ethics and differences of opinions. I think not all planners will see it the same way, but for me, a planner is typically a public servant. A lot of us work for governments, and the public good is what we're driving for. Mm -hmm. And again, nobody defines that this is the, I hesitate to use this because of hot fuzz, but like, this is the greater good. <laughs> of, um, I, yeah. I get it. I understand that this is affecting these people's commutes, but ethically, I feel like I will need to make the strongest case possible to prioritize mm -hmm. children getting to school first. Mm -hmm. And not all of them are that clear cut, so I don't want to paint it that way. But like, And it's, it's sort of like how big are those differences, too, I'm sure right. comes into it, right? Like, does it cut risk by a teeny fraction, but it makes commute times triple, you know? Or right. how much money does it cost to make that extra safety improvement versus what's in the budget? Yeah. So my second topic or point that I wanted to make today is starting to talk about like how do planners deal with all of that and how do we go from we have all this data to we have a decision. Mm -hmm. And so I think our biggest role is navigating those different needs, values, and priorities and taking all of this information we have from public engagement, from the data, from case studies, from best practices from existing plans like the comprehensive plan or if there's a transportation plan, <laughs> parks plan. Um, so we're pulling all of this together to identify, you know, trends, themes, what's significant here so that we can find out some of those highest, most closely held universal values that we can drive towards for this Grand Avenue project. There's some specific tools that we can use. Some of them I use a lot, some of them other people in my office use and they help me out. So from the more basic side of things of like a regression analysis, mm -hmm. how do we weed out some of the noise and figure out here are the significant pieces mm -hmm. from all of this data. You know, if we want to make this a safe street, here are the variables that have the highest impact mm -hmm. and we can start to put that in. Some of this, the bones of your decisions are already there. We've been doing transportation planning since, you know, cities started. Like, yeah. It's been around for a while. There's definitely a set of best practices there. And we take those and sort of overlay them on this data that we've collected to tailor it to this context because... One size fits all, fits no one. Yeah. So we typically go forward with developing a set of alternatives. Because of the way people work, it's usually two or three alternatives. Mm -hmm. So you develop these alternatives and do more public engagement to be like, are we on the right track? Do these resonate with you? What are some tweaks that we can make to these, refine them so that we have a set of solutions that make the most sense from our side of things as te technical experts, as well as from communities, business owners, city council, staff, and other parts of the MPO or cities or whatever. So again, these options 
as you would expect, are set up around certain variables. So the most common one is cost, Mm -hmm. you know, low cost, medium cost, high cost option. Budgets are limited, so they like to see that. Mm -hmm. It can also be based on sets of features. So again, if we talk about Grand Avenue, and this is not based on any data or anything, I don't know anything about Grand Avenue. I haven't done the research on it. It's kind of plucking an example out of... Right, but like not really based on reality, but just... An example, you could have that where you add on-street parking the whole way. Or you could have it where you drop it down to two lanes and have this very green, beautiful median Mm -hmm. in between. Like, you're adding a lot of greenery, dealing with stormwater better. Like, here are some different options Mm -hmm. based on features or priorities instead of just cost. Yeah, the cheapest road is no road, (laughs) again. Right. As part of this development of alternatives, you're also sort of documenting the reasons for each or Mm. the potential impacts. Mm. You know, you're kind of building a case for each. Here's Mm. why we would do this, and here's the expected results. Mm So, you know... The information they really need to know to make an informed decision. Right. So here are the you know, economic, environmental, fiscal Mm -hmm. impacts of this decision, or, you know, this is how it will impact parking and travel speeds and traffic volumes. So you want to make sure that you lay out these different impacts so that the people who are making the decision are as informed as possible. You've talked about sort of balancing those priorities. Even if all of those have net improvements on safety or something like that, there's still that set of secondary priorities Mm -hmm. that each proposed action might affect differently. Yeah, and at the end of the day, you're going to have to stand by whatever decision that you make. When you don't want to do this to communities, right? Right. You want to do it with them and and Um, be transparent. And so a good process has these different groups and different people involved all the way through. You're really transparent so that it's not a surprise. But again, it's not the highest priority for people to go to these public meetings. So when, say, city council makes this choice of this is what Grand Avenue is going to look like, They want to feel confident in how these recommendations were developed, what the Mm -hmm. potential impacts are so that they can talk to their constituents, their, you know, talk to the city overall and say, here's what we're valuing here. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. And this is why we're doing that. Um, Because at the end of the day, as planners, there's certainly small things that we can do on our own, but we are rarely the final decision makers. So the most common one is for cities and it's city council. City council is the elected representatives of the people, so they are the final decision. Mm -hmm. So we can say here are three alternatives. We recommend alternative one because of this, this, and this. It fits our values and the comprehensive plan and it achieves these things and will lead to these outcomes. But at the end of the day, it's going to be city council or the MPO board, or if you're a private sector planner, it's your client making the choice of, you know, what the final outcome will be. Very general, of course, but that's how the planning process sort of works. Going from all of this different data and information to a decision. Yeah. Blow me away. Tell me about... (laughs) Tell me about how analysts do it. So I've been really looking forward to this episode and the problem-solving series, but also, like, kind of dreading it because it's such a big topic. 
it's it's sort of backwards because um, there's sort of a saying that you know in analytics you spend ninety percent of your time prepping and cleaning the data and maybe ten percent of your time actually doing this step. Mm. So in terms of time, like it's not that big of a topic, but I feel like this is me trying to pull back the curtain, you know, and and kind of shed some light on the black box. You know, we've talked before, and and a lot of people that I talk to, the math and the statistics and the computer programming behind analytics is so mysterious, and and it creates this almost sense of fear and nervousness of like, oh, analytics, you know, big data, data science, you know, you'll just figure all that out. And that could be really exciting, and that could be like, oh, we're going to make all these things better. Or it could be really scary of saying something's going to be done to me, and I'm not even going to understand why. Like, something's going to impact my life. So it's a really tricky thing to talk about, but I do want to demystify it a little bit. And so uh, I'm not going to get into math specifics. (laughs) Never fear. (laughs) We talked about this a lot, and I think it can be several future episodes as we talk about specifics. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about any one tool or model or, you know, there's a ton of stuff that we could dive super Mm -hmm. deep in. This is just how does the overall process work? What is the approach and what are the kinds of things in our toolbox? Because it isn't, like you said, one size fits all, fits nobody. And, And that's true for the modeling part as well, that there are very specific kinds of models that you'll use for different kinds of problems and you know maybe that's helpful for people to know that it's not all just like one sort of god model that you just throw stuff into you don't have zimzola i know that's not his real name but you know longtime listeners check out episode zero for that (laughs) deep cut modeling everything and figuring everything out it's like no we we have to do some work up front to figure that out so i kind of wanted to talk about two major categories of models at least in the way that i think about them And to do that, I'm going to totally make up an example company based on five minutes of Shark Tank that I caught uh, when I was traveling for work. Great. So it's very loosely based. But let's say that you have an interior design startup. And shout outs to Mike's sister-in-law, Dana Crawford, who's the only person I know who actually knows anything about interior design. So hopefully I'm not just totally going nuts here. But you have this business where you are basically consulting with people in their homes to to decorate, doing it all online, they send you pictures, you do like this actual live consultation with them before they've committed to anything, before they've spent any money, and that's how you're going to figure out what furniture you're going to recommend to them and send to them, and that's where you make your money. So there's a couple of things that you need to figure out, like who is actually going to be your most profitable customers, how do you turn them into paying and profitable customers, and you know what might they like. So there are two main categories of analytical models that I'm going to cover. And they basically come down to whether or not you have a source of truth that you're trading against. Hopefully that'll get a little clearer as I go on. In machine learning terms, we would call this supervised learning versus unsupervised learning. Mm. So in supervised learning, you have a source of truth such as people's previous purchase patterns, how much they have spent which customers that you've done your initial consultation with have actually then gone on to be customers and which ones just said, well, that was fun, see ya, and were a waste of your time. You know you have historical truth and you can measure later after you implement some change or new practice if it was successful or not. I feel like you have something you want to say. 
nothing important. I just love the juxtaposition of terminology of, like, you have this very almost noble and mystical of, like, the source of truth. And then you have supervised versus unsupervised, like, this very clanky, mechanical. Yeah, yeah. I just love that. Source of truth is my terminology, supervised and unsupervised. That wasn't part of school. No, but supervised and unsupervised was, so maybe that's where that disconnect is coming from. All right, I will determine my own source of truth. (laughs) But, I mean, there's there's lots and lots of jargon for it, so another way of saying it is it's a a target variable. So you have a target variable, and that kind of goes back to that objective function. You know, you're trying to maximize profit. Well, what was your profit on all these people? And that's you know what you're what you're training against. So you've got all your other variables that you're bumping up against it to try to predict that one with the most accuracy. So for this startup, they're trying to predict who is the most likely to buy, or maybe they're saying how much might a particular person spend. So it's something quantifiable. There's an action out of it. A naive way without analytics of doing this would be to kind of look at averages from initial sales and maybe go with like the highest performing something. So you might say like, well, it looks like our best customers have been in their early 30s. And of course, the downside to that is that you can really only do that one variable at a time. You might have a lot more information like gender or profession or education or how they interacted with you over your email campaigns, just tons and tons of stuff. So the analytics way of doing this would be to make a model that can take several inputs simultaneously, and then you kind of figure out with all of those variables, and sometimes that could be variables combined, so like women in their early 30s might be different from men in their early 30s, might be different from women in their 50s, might be different from men in their 50s. So, you know, looking at those things together and how they interact is really important too. But these models generally work by saying, you know, if you had a graph with the amount of money that they spent on the vertical axis and you had one of the other variables, maybe let's say age, on the horizontal axis and you have all these little data points scattered all around, you're trying to find the line that fits them best, that minimizes the difference between the line and the points. And then you're just essentially doing that in many dimensions at once, not just two. One of the things we talked about in planning for this episode was sort of what are the outputs of these things, right? They're not these perfect solutions per se. And an outcome of this, um, when we're trying to make a prediction of whether or not someone will become a customer, uh, is that you're not getting a, yes, this person will be a customer. No, that person won't. You're getting a percentage. You're getting a probability, something between zero and one that they will become a customer. And then it's up to you to decide how much of a chance is worth it. Or maybe you use it to rank your priorities for setting up these live consultations and allocating your resources. Right. That's something that I've thought about a lot more lately, just being around you and hearing you talk about these (laughs) things. But, you know, one of the biggest ones recently was Nate Silver's model for President Trump's election. Mm -hmm. And it was Mm -hmm. one of those of, like, he had a very small percentage to win. Mm -hmm. And then he won. And everyone was like, your model was bad. And it's like, no this fits within those percentages 
it just wasn't as likely. Right. Fortunately or unfortunately, we don't do that same election a hundred times and see if it came out, you know, the percentage of times that he said it would, that, that he wins. You know, you, you only get that one try. And that's yeah, really so when you're thinking about this interior design business, doing this sort of modeling is going to hopefully give them the best chance, not mm-hmm. a sure chance right. that it's going to work out. But Use their time in the most wise manner. And one of the cool applications of something like this, actually, is this design firm could create an intake form on their website that asks all the questions that the model deems were most important for that probability, and then use that live to prioritize which customers they book. So maybe they do that on a daily basis or something like that. So if they're getting overwhelmed with requests for these consults, then they can determine who's actually the most likely. So that's pretty exciting. And that's actually pretty similar to instant credit decisions and things like that. There's usually something like that kind of happening. They're determining your default risk and asking you the kinds of questions that they need to know for that. So that was supervised learning. We had our source of truth. And then the other big category is unsupervised learning. I want to know what the equivalent of source of truth is. You you don't have a source of truth. That's the whole thing. It's an either or. You have no source of truth. Right. You're staring into the abyss. You're staring into the abyss, looking for patterns, (laughs) hearing drums. I don't know. Doctor Who? I don't know. Um, And and this is kind of when, you know, you might hear somebody say, well, let's just see what the data tells us. You know, but you don't necessarily have you know, something that you're trying to maximize or minimize or an outcome that you're trying to predict. You're trying to group like things. So in the interior design example, they might be looking at their customer base, their potential customer base or their current customer base uh, for ongoing business and saying, you know what? I bet not all of these people like the same kinds of design styles, right? We don't necessarily have the time to totally, totally, totally customize everybody's things, right? We might really want to start with like five different design types that we offer, and now we're trying to figure out who fits into which ones, or maybe we need to figure out which five we need. And so we're going to segment our customer base into five groups. And so the naive way that you might do that is just sort of an informal survey. You know, and I'm saying naive, that's that's kind of rough. You know, I don't mean that to be speaking down. That's just sort of the what I mean of you're not using an analytical model. So um, I, I apologize if that sounds kind of offensive. But, you know, you might do an in- informal survey or a gut check or, you know, what are what's trending in the industry and let's make sure that we're offering those things. But the downside is that it's really hard to cross-reference that against a lot of other data, you know, like customers' income and things like that. We want to know amongst our customers and everything that we know about them, what groups do they naturally fall into? So the analytics way of doing this is something called cluster analysis. So you can kind of see if there are naturally occurring groups that exist in the data. So, you know, if if you've got all of these little points scattered around, which ones are closer to, to each other? and you're trying to find homogeneous groups. What are the most similar to each other? But again, you're doing this across many, many dimensions. So, you know, we might be looking at back to those same old age and gender. We might be looking at tastes, like we might have that information from a survey or from browsing data. It's almost like you're in a TV 
high school drama and you're in the cafeteria, you're looking for the tables. Like each table might end up being a, a profile or a segment or a cluster. And you're saying that table over there is the jocks and that table over there is the nerds in this table. You're looking for the tables and you're looking for what makes them similar. So uh, an outcome of this might be that you have a predetermined number of groups such as one group would be maybe low-income young males with an interest in sports. And so maybe when you're decorating their bedrooms, you might offer a certain look for them. And then you might have middle-income families with young kids and an interest in nature. You're probably going to offer them a very different style profile. So based on the data that you have and maybe some that you would go seek, you can kind of create these segmentations and figure out if you had to segment your customer base into some manageable groups, what would they look like and how could you best serve them and tailor your products to appease to them the best yeah. and the marketing as well. So, and, and again, the, the point here is I, I never said I was optimizing for expenditure or trying to maximize profits with those customer bases. Hopefully that would be an outcome of using this analysis and you might feed that back into your prediction for consults for, for new customers. You might ask them, you know, what um, of five style profiles they would say fits them best. What, what categories do they like? But we're really just seeing who do we have and and how can we get to know them better without really getting to know them as special snowflake individuals. So yeah. that's unsupervised learning. And now you know it all. Yeah, I just immediately <laughs> want to dive into all the details. Yeah, well, um, maybe later. <laughs> yeah, I think about that. Like the equivalent that we have experience with is like clothing box yeah, services. Stitch Fix, I actually wrote down, like, trying to make up how I think Stitch Fix works. But it's one of those of, similar to planning almost, you wonder how accurate you are when you're filling out that survey. Mm-hmm. Like, what are, like, I checked off these 15 different photos of looks that I'm mm-hmm. apparently into. <laughs> and then you get a box and you're like, I'm not into this box. And it's like... Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And back to the other form, the supervised learning for that prediction case, it didn't come out with a totally accurate, you know, yes or no, came out with a range. That's going to be true of the segmentation too. So back to your cafeteria example, you might need to have so few groups that you're getting multiple tables together and you might have one table that's really far away from all your others, but it's it's the best you can do to get the number of groups that you wanted. You know, you needed five instead of six or whatever. And you do still have your special snowflakes. You know, not everybody's going to fit into that mold. And so some groups are going to be more tightly clustered than others. We're going to have more differentiation in some other ones. And it can be a process that you refine and say, maybe looking at customer satisfaction. And you kind of, when you do this, if you have like your entire population split into five, it's pretty common that you'll have one that's just sort of junk. Like you'll have three that are like really well-defined your fourth one is like, okay, all right, I can kind of see that one. And then your fifth is like, and everybody else, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so you can kind of say like, well, we're doing really well with these two groups. They're really satisfied. We're, we're sending them the stuff that they want. They're turning out to be profitable. We have more work to do with these others. Maybe we need to split them up. And maybe that's easier to do because you've got the other two figured out. There's a lot of, of course, a lot of math, 
uh, behind that, a lot of different ways to do it, tons and tons and tons. Uh, but I think at the core, it really does come down to that. You know, if you're visualizing a scatter plot and you've got a bunch of dots, you're either trying to fit a line through it that minimizes the distance from the line to the plots, or you're trying to basically draw circles around different groups of, of those dots to get ones that are pretty similar to each other. And everything beyond that is just sort of computation and sophistication. Love it. Yeah, so that's the latest chapter in our problem-solving process. We might have one more after this, but we hope you found that enlightening. I enjoyed talking to you about yours. <laughs> yeah, and we are sort of talking before the podcast. We have some ideas for new themes for future episodes mm-hmm. where it's just the two of us that we're really excited about, and we hope you will be as well. Yeah. So that's going to do it for this episode. For future episodes, we're always excited and looking for guests to interview. Um, So if you are interested in coming on the show to talk about work that you do in the community or know somebody else who you think might be interested or that you'd like for us to reach out to, please reach out to us. You can email us at brightlightsbigdata at gmail.com. You can find us and message us on Twitter at blbdpod. And we also have a Facebook page under Bright Lights Big Data. Our last guest, uh, Katie Rock, reached out to us through there. So, you know, we do check that and uh, we love to hear from you about any questions that you might have or, or feedback on the show. Speaking of feedback, please make sure that you rate us and review us at Apple Podcasts. really helps um, new listeners get into the show and know what they're getting into. Yeah, that's it for us today. So this has been Bright Lights, Big Data. Until next time. Thank you.